Due to the graphic nature of this haunted place, listener discretion is advised. This episode includes discussions of rape, murder, and pedophilia. We advise extreme caution for children under 13. Mary waved as the green 1959 Ford Cortina disappeared around the corner. Kevin grunted and went back into the house. Mary sighed. He used to be such a lovely boy, but it seemed even her sweet grandson was not immune to puberty. As she put the kettle on, she heard knocking coming from the parlor. She yelled for Kevin to cut it out. But when Kevin stepped into the room, the knocking continued. Mary stared at Kevin in confusion. Then, out of nowhere, a tin of tea leaves toppled out of one of the cabinets. The tea flowed over the counter and began to form letters. The word, Fred. Suddenly, a high wind sprang up, blowing the tea leaves everywhere. Mary screamed. Then everything went still. Kevin looked at her, afraid and confused. Mary said whatever that was, they had better get it cleaned up before his parents got home. As she cleaned, Mary tried to make sense of things. Kevin thought it was a ghost, but Mary was pragmatic. To her, the question was not, what is it, but is it dangerous? After dinner, Kevin said he wanted to turn in early, but when Mary came upstairs, he was still wide awake. She sat down beside him and said he didn't need to be afraid. What they saw may have frightened him, but somehow she just knew that it didn't want to hurt them. But just then, Kevin's face went white as a sheet. He pointed to the corner where the wardrobe was trembling, rocking back and forth like it was about to fall over. As it swayed, a low growling sound came from inside, making Mary's hair stand on end. She pulled Kevin out of bed she was wrong. Whatever this thing was, it was very dangerous. Welcome to Haunted Places, a Spotify original from Parcast. I'm Greg Polson. Every Thursday, I take you to the scariest, eeriest, most haunted, real places on Earth. You can find all episodes of Haunted Places and all other Spotify originals from ParCast for free on Spotify. And every Tuesday, make sure to check out Urban Legends. These special episodes of Haunted Places are available exclusively on Spotify. This week, join me on a supernatural journey to Pontefract, England. We'll hear the story of the sinister spirit who occupies a modest suburban house there and discover why, to this day, it's haunted. Coming up, we'll meet the Black Monk of Pontefract. From the outside, 30 East Drive looks like any other home, a red brick two-story house with a well-tended garden. And in the 1960s, a middle-aged couple and their two older children called the place home. When they first moved in, they thought the house was perfect. It was quaint with a good-sized yard and plenty of storage space. And most importantly, it was within their budget. They'd been waiting a long time for a home like this. They thought nothing in the world could make them give it up. But they were wrong. 
Sharon scraped off a strip of wallpaper from her daughter's bedroom wall. Two years ago, her daughter Kristen thought that the pink and white bunnies were so cute. Now, suddenly they were babyish, and she'd rather sleep in Kevin's room. It had to happen someday. Her baby girl had just turned 14, but already she was becoming a gum-chewing, back-talking teenager. Sharon sighed, reached for her paintbrush, and turned around. She paused. She could have sworn that she'd put the papering supplies right there. Maybe she accidentally set them down behind a piece of furniture. Sharon stood up and peeked over the dresser. Her blood ran cold. The supplies had been arranged into a tottering pyramid. As she watched, a strip of wallpaper rose from the wastebasket like a cobra. It swayed back and forth, then dove straight at her. Sharon screamed and ducked behind the dresser. Her heart pounded. There was no denying it now. It was starting again. Fred was back. The family had met Fred shortly after they moved in. They were all supposed to go on holiday to Devon, but at the last minute, Kevin decided he wasn't going. Back then, Kevin was the teenage monster. After a good deal of screaming, they finally decided to go without him. They called Sharon's mother, Mary, to watch Kevin and left for a lovely weekend by the beach. A few days later, they returned to find Mary and Kevin in hysterics, ranting and raving about flying tea leaves and a ghost. Sharon asked if perhaps they might have been working themselves up over nothing and jokingly referred to the ghost as Fred. In response, the windows began to shake and three loud bangs sounded out. Two years had passed since that weekend. Kevin had left school and was working at his father's shop, but still lived at home. Sharon rarely thought about Fred, except to occasionally wonder if Kevin and her mother had imagined the whole thing. But after what she'd seen with the wallpaper, Sharon truly believed that there was something supernatural living in this house. As soon as Tom got home from work, Sharon sat him down and told him there was a ghost. Tom laughed and said it had been months since he'd thought about that ghost nonsense. That instant, there was a thump overhead. Sharon went pale and told him to keep his voice down. Tom rolled his eyes and said Kevin's story hadn't even sounded like a real poltergeist. Weren't they supposed to rip up family photos and break China? As soon as he said it, a chill swept through the parlor. He'd done it now. The china cabinet rattled. It swayed side to side. There was a knock, then another. Then all at once, the doors of the china cabinet flew open. Cups and saucers flew out and smashed on the floor. The pictures from the mantelpiece crashed to the ground, and Tom and Sharon were left standing in the middle of the wreckage. Sharon put her hands on her hips and asked Tom if he still thought it was nonsense. They spent the rest of the afternoon trying to come up with solutions. Kevin suggested they have someone from the church come by to do an exorcism. But they hadn't been to church in over a year, and Sharon had a feeling that the local vicar, Reverend Howard, might not be eager to stick his neck out for them. Sharon suggested hanging garlic around the house. 
Tom ignored her. He said they could move. Sharon crossed her arms and said a whole armada of ghosts would not get her to move out of this house. They discussed it all evening. But the only thing they managed to agree on was that they shouldn't say anything to Kristen. She was volatile enough already. Case in point, she refused to leave her brother's bedroom and come to dinner. Sharon begrudgingly took Kristen a chicken sandwich and found her curled up under the covers. She asked if everything was all right. But before Kristen could respond, there was a banging next to the bed. Sharon jumped, but Kristen didn't bat an eyelash. Sharon asked how she could be so calm. Kristen shrugged and said strange things had been happening for weeks. That was why she didn't sleep in her bedroom anymore. There was something in there that would pull the covers off her and pinch her. She didn't say anything because she didn't want them to think she was being childish. Tears filled Sharon's eyes. She said it was okay to be scared. They were going to fix this, but until they did, Sharon had the feeling they were going to be scared a lot. They tried everything, seances and mediums. They even convinced Reverend Howard to give them some holy water. But things only got worse. Every night, Tom and Sharon heard bizarre noises. Chickens in the bedroom, low growls in the hall, and heavy breathing just outside the door. But as bad as things were for them, they were twice as bad for Kristen. Whenever she entered the kitchen, she was pelted with eggs and chairs that came within inches of her face. She was constantly on edge. But even in this state, she insisted on going to the end of school ball. Her parents thought it was a bad idea. She was exhausted and barely there. She needed a good night's sleep, not a dimly lit gymnasium full of teenage boys. Before the dance, Kristen spent every penny she had at the druggist. She bought lipstick and rouge and a red silk carnation. Sharon looked over the purchases disapprovingly. She started to say that Kristen was too young for this stuff. She was interrupted by deafening pounding on the ceiling. They looked up. Then Kristen glanced back down and her eyes went wide. Sharon followed her gaze. The floor was covered in Kristen's new things, all of which were ruined. The lipstick was smeared, the blush pulverized, and the silk flower ripped to shreds. Kristen fell to her knees, eyes brimming with tears. Sharon said she looked prettier without the makeup. Kristen said she looked like a tired hag because her mother made her live in a dark, dirty, haunted house. Kristen put her face in her hands and ran off sobbing. Sharon slumped over in her chair. This was supposed to be their dream house. She thought they could endure spooky noises and broken plates, but she didn't want to keep the place if it meant losing her daughter. As Sharon climbed into bed that evening, she asked Tom if he thought she was a bad mother. Tom smiled and said never in a million years. Just then, the lights went out and the room filled with the cloying scent of floral perfume. An unusual quiet fell, and the only sound was footsteps. Sharon's blood ran cold. Something was approaching the bed. She could hear heavy breathing getting closer and closer. There was a crackling sound. The light flicked on just long enough 
for her to see the man looming over her bed. He was tall and thin, wearing a monk's habit. He had coal-black eyes that burned with raw fury, and his lips were twisted into a bestial snarl. The light flickered, and suddenly the monk was gone. The next second, an earth-shattering scream came from Kristen's room. Sharon bolted out of bed and stumbled to the door. The knocking started up again. Sharon heard a door swing open. Her daughter's screams got louder. Then, Sharon heard the distinctive sound of a body being dragged downstairs. Sharon ran after her daughter. She stumbled into the parlor where something was holding Kristen by her hair. Her feet dangled a few inches above the ground, and her head was thrust upwards like an invisible hand was gripping her neck. Kristen's eyes were bulging. Sharon had to do something. So she closed her eyes, balled her hands into fists, and shouted. That was enough. They were taking their things tonight, leaving, and never, ever coming back. All at once, the lights came back on, and everything went quiet. Sharon rushed to her daughter's side. She could see a hand-shaped bruise around Kristen's neck. Kristen looked up at her mother and asked if she meant what she said. Sharon nodded. She clutched Kristen's hand and said she'd do whatever it took to keep her safe. In August of 1966, the Pritchards, a family of four, moved into 30 East Drive. There was Joe, who owned a pet store, his wife Jean, a fastidious Yorkshire housewife, and their two children, Philip and Diane. But not long after their move, their Pritchard's dream house became something of a nightmare. They were terrorized by the black monk of Pontefract for years, and despite their fears, the Pritchard's remained in the house for decades. But unlike most poltergeists, it wasn't just immediate family members who experienced the haunting. Neighbors, friends, and acquaintances all witnessed the bizarre phenomenon. Most of the haunting was little more than pranks. Once, a ghost poured milk on the head of an aunt who doubted its existence. When a neighbor remarked that poltergeists are fond of ripping up pictures, the ghost responded by pulling down a few family photos. Another time, someone mentioned how lucky the Pritchards were that their grandfather clock had survived all the chaos. The ghost promptly sent the clock hurtling down the staircase. The Pritchards had plenty of amusing stories about Fred, as they called him, but they had some darker stories as well. Fred had a violent side that only emerged when the Pritchards were alone with him. There was the time he threw a dresser at Diane. Then there was the night something dragged Diane up the stairs by her hair. It nearly strangled her and left a red hand-shaped mark around her neck. Their poltergeist was not a simple prank-loving spook. It was something much more complicated. Coming up, the violent origins of the Black Monk of Pontefract. Hi, it's Carter from Parcast, and I'm hosting the new limited series, Hollywood Scandals. We all know that Tinseltown is the land of glitz and glamour, but look closer, 
past the allure of bright lights and red carpets. There, you'll find a more disturbing tale, one filled with tragedies and transgressions so damaging they've turned hopes and dreams into high-profile nightmares. Every Monday on this Spotify original, discover the real-life dramas of some of entertainment's biggest names. From the mysterious drowning of Natalie Wood and the murder trials of comedian Fatty Arbuckle to the star clients of Hollywood Madam Heidi Fleiss. Each episode of Hollywood Scandals has been curated from shows across the ParCast network, covering over a century's worth of controversies, from the silent era into the digital age. Fame and fortune may be fleeting, but scandals, they stand the test of time. Follow the Spotify original from ParCast, Hollywood Scandals. Listen free only on Spotify. Now back to the story. As Pritchard's haunting progressed, reporters took an interest in the story, and several articles were published in the local papers. One of these articles drew the attention of local amateur historian Tom Cuniff, who was studying the Cluniac monks of the Pontefract Priory. It was Cuniff who made the connection between the Pritchard's ghost and a 16th century monk who was hung not far from their home. The monk's story takes place during the reign of King Henry VIII, a time when the monarchy was wrestling with the Catholic Church for control of England. Back then, there were only two buildings large enough to rise above the rolling green hills of Pontefract, the castle and the priory. Today, the castle is in ruins, and the priory land has been built over with an area of town known as Monk Hill. But in the past, these two buildings were seats of power, magnets for intrigue, and settings for tragic scenes of terrible violence. Lorena stood with her ear to the door of the Great Hall. She could just hear Baron Walter's low growl and the Earl's affected courtly speech. She couldn't quite make out what they were saying, but that didn't really matter. She knew what they were talking about. Their proposal had been a shrewd political move. Baron Walter had been speaking of joining the Catholic rebellion. King Henry wanted to ensure his loyalty, so he'd arranged for a marriage between the Baron's only child, the Lady Emma, and his most faithful supporter. Thedric, Earl of Devonshire, was a tall, thin man with dark black eyes. There were rumors that he had a fondness for very young girls. Lorena didn't like the way he looked at Emma one bit. Thankfully, the Baron turned down the Earl's proposal by saying that Emma could not wed till she'd had her first blood. Lorena did not believe for a moment that he did this for the sake of his child. Baron Walter barely knew Emma. Lorena was the one who'd raised her. She'd nursed Emma at her own breast, told her stories when she was bored, and held her close when she was scared at night. The Baron only objected to the marriage because he didn't want to tie himself to the king. Of course, Lorena didn't care why the Baron had objected. She was just happy that Emma was safe from the Earl. Safe for a moment, anyway. That morning, Lorena found blood on Emma's sheets. The girl had only just turned 12. Lorena hadn't expected it to happen so soon. If anyone discovered the sheets, Emma would be forced to marry the Earl without delay. 
Lorena hastily hid them in Emma's dowry chest. She'd been planning to burn them later. But before she could, the Earl sent for the old box. He hadn't known, of course. It was just a coincidence. He wanted to present Emma with an elaborate silver strongbox to replace her old wooden dowry chest. The Earl's servants then discovered the sheets when they were moving Emma's trousseau from one box to the other, and they told him immediately. The voices on the other side of the door grew louder and angrier. Lorena backed away, just as the Earl of Devonshire burst through, nearly knocking her over on his way out. His face was beet red, and he was shouting that Baron Walter had made himself a powerful enemy. Refusing a marriage proposed by the king was tantamount to treason. He would come to regret this. Lorena's heart leapt. Emma was safe. She needed to tell her the good news. Lorena sprinted down the cloistered hall towards Emma's bedchamber, but she wasn't there. She searched in the kitchens, the yard, and even called for her around the privy. Lorena was just about to give up looking when she ran into the kitchen boy, who said he saw her heading towards the priory. Lorena smiled. Of course, Emma would often sneak off to the priory. There was a gardener there, a tall, thin man named Frederick. Emma had taken a shine to him. She would help him with his chores and in the garden. Lorena would always scold her for sullying her clothes. Really, though, it tickled her that Emma's idea of rebellion was pulling up weeds and collecting eggs for an old man. Lorena left the castle and made her way down to the priory at the bottom of the hill. It was a beautiful day. The sun was out, and the flower gardens were in full bloom, filling the air with a scent of lavender and freesia. As Lorena opened the little gate and stepped into the farmyard, she felt something crack beneath her foot. She looked down and realized she'd stepped on an egg. As she scraped the shell off her shoe, Lorena noticed that there were several more eggs strewn about the yard. Beyond them was a little straw basket. Lorena's stomach tightened. All of a sudden, the day didn't seem so pleasant anymore. There was an odd tension in the air, and the smell of flowers had become thick and cloying. The only sounds were the clucking of chickens and the low growl of a hound tied up in the corner. No, there was one other sound, heavy breathing. A muffled shriek came from a nearby bale of hay. Lorena leapt over the gate, calling out for Emma. All she heard was a groan in response. As she ran towards the hay bale, a figure in a black monk's habit sprinted away disappearing into the woods beyond the priory. A body lay crumpled at the base of the haystack. Lorena knelt down beside it, and a lump formed in her throat. Lorena prayed that it was anyone else, but she recognized the blue dress beneath the girl's cloak. Lorena reached out with trembling hands and turned the body over. Emma gazed up at her with unblinking brown eyes. Blood seeped from a deep cut in her throat, soaking into the blue cotton of her dress. Lorena clutched Emma to her chest and screamed. In the weeks after Emma's death, Lorena wanted to forget what she'd seen. She'd tried to think of nothing, 
to focus on the folds of her skirt or the cracks in the wall. She worked so hard at forgetting Emma's death that she soon began to forget other things, smaller things. She became absent-minded. She'd put down a rag in the hearth, and then a moment later, she would see it draped over a candlestick. She blamed it on grief, but there were times when she wondered if it was something more. When she was alone in the castle, she would hear strange noises, knocks and thumps that kept her awake all night. Once, she could have sworn that she saw a loaf of bread floating across the kitchen. And it didn't help that she had to keep reliving the terrible moment she'd found Emma over and over again. No matter how many times she told her story, the Baron's advisors were never satisfied. They kept asking if she could think of anything, some detail that would tell them which monk had killed the girl. But there was nothing. All she saw was the back of the man's habit. The Baron was irate. He said as long as the monks would not hand over the culprit, they were all guilty. And he would not ally himself with murderers and rapists. He called on the Earl of Devonshire to return to the castle. The Baron apologized for the way he had behaved. He said if his daughter was still alive, he would happily have given her to the Earl. His loyalty was to the King now. The Earl graciously accepted the Baron's apology. As a gesture of condolence, he told the Baron to keep the silver strongbox he had given Emma. The chest was locked and the key had gone missing, so it wasn't of much use to him. But maybe it should be buried with the girl. It seemed fitting. On the day of the burial, Lorena awoke at sunrise and wandered down to the chapel. She took a seat in one of the stone pews. As she gazed up at the carved stone vaults, Lorena noticed a lit candle floating directly above her. At first, she thought there must be some candelabra holding it up, but the longer she looked, the more she became convinced that it was floating in midair. A chill descended over the chapel. Lorena's teeth chattered. She glanced up and saw that the candle was spinning like a top. Lorena heard chickens clucking, now the low growl of a dog. She closed her eyes. Whatever demon had been haunting her, it was finally going to claim her. Something whizzed past her head, and she heard a crack. An egg had smashed against Emma's silver dowry chest. Another egg soared towards the dowry chest, and then another. With each one, there was a smell. The almost cloying scent of lavender and freesia. Lorena shrieked. She jumped up from the pew and ran toward the door, but she was stopped by a lanky man. It was the Earl. He asked her what was the matter. When Lorena looked around, she realized that the possessed objects had gone still, and the room was quiet. Lorena begged his pardon. She was about to leave when she saw that a white, fine powder was falling all around her. It appeared out of thin air drifting from just below her chin, floating slowly to the ground, where it formed a thin white blanket, like snow. Lorena watched in astonishment as lines appeared in the powder, almost as if they were being drawn with an invisible finger. They spelled out a word, Frederick. Lorena's eyes widened in sudden comprehension. This thing she'd been experiencing, it wasn't grief, 
or some demon. It was Emma. She'd been trying to tell her something. The eggs, the smell of flowers, and the sound of chickens. Lorena had wanted to block that memory from her mind, but Emma reminded her of it because she was trying to explain something. She was trying to name her killer. Frederick, the elderly monk. He seemed so frail that everyone had discounted him, but it made sense. That was his garden. Of course it had been him. Lorena turned to the Earl. His face had gone pale, and he was staring at the word on the ground. Lorena said they had to go to the Baron right away. This was a sign. They knew who'd killed Emma. The Earl nodded gravely. That monk would pay for what he'd done. At some point in the 1500s, a young girl of noble birth was raped and murdered not far from the Pontefract Priory. A monk was arrested for the crime and eventually hung from the gallows at the top of a small hill, less than a mile away from the castle and priory. Nearly 500 years later, an ordinary brick house was built, mere feet away from the spot where the gallows once stood. It remained unremarkable until August of 1966 when something that had long lain dormant on the property began to stir. The Pritchard family of 30 East Drive had unintentionally disturbed a dark and powerful force. A violent spirit had been awakened, and it was angry. Coming up, the true nature of the entity that stalked the Pritchard family. Now back to the story. According to the best-known book on the Black Monk House, Colin Wilson's Poltergeist, a classic study in destructive hauntings, in the 16th century, a Cluniac monk was hung for the rape and possible murder of a girl. This theory is based on the research of amateur historian Tom Conniff. However, when author Colin Wilson dug into local records to confirm this account, there was only limited information available about the Cluniac order, he could neither prove nor disprove that a monk had committed rape and murder and been hanged. If Cuniff's theory of the monk is true, we still don't know if the monk was actually guilty. The courts of medieval Europe were not known for their fairness or careful prosecution, and a Pontefract monk would have been a convenient pawn in the political machinations of the English nobility. Beginning in 1536, King Henry VIII advocated for the dissolution of the Catholic monasteries. As historian Emma J. Wells points out in an article for BBC History magazine, medieval clergymen commonly got into trouble for illicit behavior, such as visiting brothels, drinking, and gambling. And in the mid-16th century, it was a time when the king's supporters were looking for excuses to make the clergy look even more corrupt and immoral. In Pontefract, the issue may have been particularly fraught. If the nobility believed that a monk from the Pontefract Priory had raped and murdered the child of a nobleman, it just might have been enough to tip the scales of history. Emma dropped the heavy iron key onto her father's desk. He looked up from his papers, confused. Emma screamed and banged on the wall. Her father looked around and demanded to know who was there. Emma took a deep breath. She had to get this right. 
The last time she'd communicated with the living, she'd gotten it horribly wrong. Emma had tried to speak to her nursemaid, Lorena. She'd tried to show her the scene of her own death, the eggs scattered on the ground, the sound of chickens, and the overwhelming smell of flowers. Finally, Lorena understood that Emma had written the name of her killer. But she was new to ghostly intervention, and her finger slipped. The TH turned into an FR. Thedrick became Frederick. A day later, an innocent man was hanged because of it. Now she had to correct her mistake, and there wasn't much time. They were going to bury her body tomorrow, and any evidence of Thedrick's crime would be buried along with her. So Emma followed Thedrick, Earl of Devonshire, back to his chambers. She watched him wrap a knife in the monk's cloak he'd worn to disguise himself. That knife was the one he'd used to slit her throat. His family seal was inscribed on the blade, and it was the only evidence linking him to her murder. The Earl wasn't frightened or overwhelmed. He looked perfectly in control. A true monster. She watched him slip the bundle into the gaudy silver chest he'd bought her. He locked it, then tossed the key into the river. He had been the one to suggest she be buried with the chest. What better way to hide the evidence? Emma glanced around the room and spotted the candle sitting on her father's desk. Maybe if she couldn't tell him the truth, she could show it to him. Emma grabbed the candle and the key. The Baron's eyes widened as she backed slowly out of the room. To him, it must have looked like the two objects were floating in midair. She paused in the doorway and waited. For a moment, she was afraid he might not follow her. But then he stood up from the table, walking after her as though in a trance. He followed her through the halls of the castle and down a flight of winding stairs. As they came to the doors of the chapel, he stopped. For a moment, he looked behind him, as if he were contemplating going back. Frustrated, Emma stomped her foot, unleashing a thunderous rattling that shook the walls of the castle. He straightened his spine and continued towards the chapel. She took him to the small stone coffin where her body rested. She turned to the dowry chest and gingerly placed the key on top of it. Her father reached for it tentatively. His brow furrowed as he turned the key and raised the lid. He reached in and pulled out the bundle that lay on top. He examined the monk's robes, running his fingers over the rough wool and touching the dried blood along the hem. The knife slipped out and clattered to the floor. Emma was breathless with anticipation. She could see that he still hadn't put it together, but this had to be the moment. He'd seen the bloody monk's robes, and now he would see Thedrick's family crest on the knife. But just as her father bent to pick up the knife, a voice came from the doorway. Emma turned to see Thedrick, smiling serenely. He took a step forward and asked the Baron what he was doing. Before the Baron could answer, Thedrick's eyes drifted to the open lid of the dowry chest. He asked how he'd gotten the chest open. He thought the key was lost. Emma's father said that he'd found it, and he'd discovered something strange in the chest. He trailed off. Emma screamed in frustration. He was so close to working it out. Thedrick took another step closer and asked the Baron if he could take a look. 
Emma's heart raced. She screamed for her father to look at the knife. The Baron ran his finger lightly along the blade. Edric smiled and took another step. Now, the two men were mere inches apart. The Baron flipped the knife over and glanced down. That was when he saw the crest. He recognized it at once. Comprehension spread across his features. In the same instant, Thedric dove for the knife. He caught it, and the two men wrestled for control. Thedric raised it higher until it was right in between their faces. Thedric smiled and asked the Baron if he regretted denying his proposal now. Her father gave a cry of rage. In a sudden burst of strength, he overpowered Thedric and thrust the knife through his eye. A spray of blood splattered across his face. For a moment, Thedric looked stunned. Then he fell to his knees and toppled over onto the ground. Her father seemed terrified. He glanced anxiously around the room, looking from the Earl's body to the enormous silver chest. Suddenly, Emma realized what he was going to do. She shook her head. No, he wouldn't. He could not bury his own daughter with her killer. Her father was sweating and his hands were trembling. Emma stamped her feet and screamed, but he just winced and ignored her. He put his hands around Thedric's waist and heaved him into the box. Then he slammed the lid shut and locked it. He put the key in his pocket and walked away. Emma screamed, she cried and railed, but no one could hear her. She could already feel her spirit changing, growing weaker. She could feel a dark presence taking over, the man who she was now bound to for all eternity. The chapel was disappearing. It was being eclipsed by a monster. Of the many anecdotes and details in the Pritchard story, three stand out as particularly baffling and mysterious. One is that the home at 30 East Drive would often fill with the sound of chickens, and loud labored breathing would come from outside the Pritchard's bedroom door. Next, there's the story that the family told about how the poltergeist cracked a dozen eggs on their living room carpet, and each one filled the room with the scent of a flower garden. Finally, there is a curious scene that occurred one morning as Mrs. Pritchard was cleaning the chimney. When she stuck her head in the fireplace, she was showered with 19 keys. 18 belonged to the Pritchards. They'd been collected by the ghost and stuffed into the chimney. But the 19th was an old-fashioned key that Pritchards had never seen before. Told separately, these are just three unusual incidents. But put them together, and there is a maddening sense that the spirit at 30 East Drive was desperately trying to convey a message. Perhaps it was attempting to reveal some great secret, to right a wrong, or just tell its own story. Whatever it seems, the poltergeist didn't have control over itself or the world around it. In the end, all it could do was rage. After the night the black monk dragged Diane up the stairs, the supernatural activity began to fade. The family chalked it up to the fact that they hung up garlic all over their house. But researchers who have studied the case disagreed. Many parapsychologists describe poltergeists as unconscious manifestations of adolescent energy, 
or as disembodied spirits that feed on the energy of teenagers. Whether or not you believe this, the case of the black monk does seem to be centered around teenagers. Philip and Diane were both going through puberty when the hauntings occurred, and according to the theory of the murderous monk, his first victim was an adolescent as well. Maybe there is something about this awkward liminal stage that attracts a sort of frenetic energy. Teenagers are like charged batteries, bursting with potential, ready to enter the world, but also cautious, not sure how to use their new power at their disposal. This can be a terrifyingly precarious position. Most people release that energy in a stream of angsty combustion that lasts for years. Eventually they make it through, more or less intact. But what if they don't? What if their life is brutally cut short? Maybe all that energy, all that rage, fear, and excitement gets trapped, bottled up for hundreds of years, until the day it finally explodes. Thanks again for tuning into Haunted Places. We'll be back on Thursday with a new episode. And don't forget to come back on Tuesday for our Urban Legends series, available only on Spotify. You can find more episodes of Haunted Places and all other Spotify originals from Parcast for free on Spotify. I'll see you next time. Haunted Places is a Spotify original from Parcast. Executive producers include Max and Ron Cutler, sound design by Kenny Hobbs, with production assistance by Ron Shapiro, Carly Madden, and Travis Clark. This episode of Haunted Places was written by Zoe Luisa Lewis, with writing assistance by Greg Castro, fact-checking by Claire Cronin, and research by Adriana Gomez and Mickey Taylor. I'm Greg Polson. Hey there, Carter again. Before you go, remember to check out my new podcast limited series, Hollywood Scandals. In anticipation of the Oscars, we're unearthing some of the most sordid controversies in showbiz history. Tune in every Monday. Follow Hollywood Scandals free only on Spotify.